Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, uh, we thank and praise you uh, that you're a God of life, a God of speech, a God of transformation. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, that in your word uh, we discover what you love and what you hate and we pray that you would speak to us now by your word and spirit that we would know all the more your loves, your hates and in doing so you would transform us to share your heart. Uh, Father, we ask that uh, through hearing your word we learn all the more what it is to trust Jesus and live for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, 1 verse 1, Ezra opens up, we can see a little bit of it on the screen. He opens up, uh, in order to fulfil the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. And you think, great, Um, God's keeping his word, that's lovely, and yet it feels a little distant. Now it feels a long way from 21st century Wollongong. Lots of strange stuff going on in there, like uh, who, who exactly is Cyrus? What's going on with Persia? Who's Sheshbazar? Who lost the 30th silver pan? All those kind of questions that are hanging around, some won't get answered. Um, it feels a long way from us in 21st century Wollongong. Cyrus lived two and a half thousand years ago. We can see a picture of his empire that he ruled, centred in what we'd say is modern Iran, uh, stretching from the Middle East all the way across through Mesopotamia to parts of even India. It seems a long way away. And yet the God who moves hearts, literally that that expression is he stirs the spirit, he shifts passion into action, is the same God who is still speaking. As the Lord is still speaking to us through the book of Ezra, he is speaking to situations that actually aren't as distant as my first scene. There's this book, God is speaking through Ezra to our weakness to our weakness. This is a word, uh, if you've ever felt in that kind of place where um, your faith has put you a little bit on the edge of either a circle of friends or the edge of your culture, put you in a place where you feel pressured to fit in and go along with the flow, this is a word for you. We need to step back a bit to see why. Um, There is a lot implied in that opening line in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Um, Our version actually drops the original opening word. Uh, The original opening word is and, and in the first year of Cyrus. We drop it because we don't like starting sentences or books with and. Um, Your English teacher would have you in trouble. But but Ezra wants to connect the history of God's people to their current situation. This is part of a longer story. Uh, It's part of a story of former glory and present weakness. The glory goes back a fair way. The glory of God's people was around 1000 B.C., under King David and Solomon. And at that point, they were the envy of the nations. But their failure to love God with a whole heart saw that kingdom, that kingdom that was the envy of others, split into two. There's the north and northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So folks in the northern kingdom, to secure their power, the kings of the north set up alternative places of Worship, And that is, they, they swiftly left the God who loved them behind. And in 722 BC, uh, the Assyrians come through and wipe them out. They're the, they're the kind of orangey empire over the top. They spread out and take over. Um, here's one of the problems you may or may not have to deal with in life. How do you run a multicultural empire that spans a huge distance, like from the Middle East to India? Um, well, the Assyrians' approach was literally to shift people around. 
So take some people from one part of the empire and move them to another, mix the cultures, mix the religions, in the hope that what they would do is destroy the local identity. You know, make them stop having an identity of their own and kind of fit in with it. And so northern Israel ceased to be Israel and became Samaria. Now the south, south held on a little longer. Uh, Judah had the temple. They, they could, worship of the true God could keep happening, could, but didn't. So Judah's worship was really going through the motions with, with hearts that were far from God and their society therefore was just full of injustice. And God wouldn't have it. The next superpower arose, um, Babylon, the purple uh, kingdom. They come through. Um, 587 uh, BC, they wipe out Assyria. They ransack Jerusalem. That, that is, they, they turn the whole city and the temple to rubble. You know, think, if, if you've seen images of what's happening to uh, besieged cities in Ukraine, think that. All right? Uh, and, and the Babylonian approach, they've got the same problem. How do we hold this massive multicultural empire together? Well, they think the best policy is let's take the best of society, the cream of the crop, away from their homes. We're going to bring them to Babylon. We're going to show them how beautiful Babylon is. Let's transport them in. They'll learn their culture. Um, we'll win them over. They will love our way of living. That, was, that exile, that transport was Daniel's experience. Think him and the lion's den. But God promised through Jeremiah it would only last 70 years. So Ezra 1 verse 1, here we are, the word of the Jeremiah being fulfilled. God is actually ahead of schedule. Um, his mercy is always greater. It hasn't even been 70 years. 538 BC, Persia, the next kingdom, uh, overthrow Babylon uh, as the latest superpower. And, and the Persian policy, how are they going to run this multicultural empire, this, this huge national... Well, they're going to win the hearts of everyone by sending everyone home. You know, everyone's going to love us, you know. You have your own culture, have your own identity, have your own religion. That's all great as long as your prayers are for the Persian king and your culture is in the service of Persian power. The subtle pressure to compromise and fit in. You can have your religion as long as you fit in. See, God's people, all implied in verse 1, God's people are returning in weakness. It's not triumph, they are still slaves. They've got no cultural sway, they've got no political power or authority. So yes, they can practice their religion as long as their religion doesn't make them stick out. And that subtle pressure, we can relate to, can't we? We can understand that. That, That's the kind of weakness that we we know, isn't it? Mainstream Christianity has moved from the centre of cultural power and, and political power in our country and we know that. And, and you know that in your circle of friends, in, in where you study, where you work, um, holding biblical positions on issues like sex and gender is considered by many in our society as harmful. So the pressure is on to subtly compromise. Be, be, you know, have your faith, be a Christian, just fit in. Don't step out of line. And so as we look at Ezra... Don't see the big distance with the strange names and the location. Here is God speaking to, comforting, encouraging us in our weakness. And at the same time, God is also speaking through Ezra to our longings, our heart's desires. This is a word uh, from God for our longing for him and for eternal satisfaction, for something better than what this world of brokenness offers. Uh, So 1 verse 5 God moves hearts to go build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. 
So the, the big concern of Ezra is the restoration of worship, getting back in a right relationship with God. Um, there's a companion book to Ezra, it's the, the one straight after called Nehemiah and that focuses on the, the restoration of God's city. But Ezra's attention is at the temple, the house of God, the place where God and humanity can actually meet together because remember the Babylonians, they laid waste to that. The, the temple was a, a shell and just before that happened, uh, in Ezekiel 10, leading up to the city's fall, God's presence left the temple. So, you know, the Lord left his home on earth. And so this spiritless kind of shell of the temple is reduced to rubble and the people left behind are in poverty. And yeah, they they would have likely kept offering sacrifices on this ash heap of an altar, but it wasn't the place anymore where they could meet with God. Can I say, this is a problem not just for the people of the time, not just for the Jews, but for the world. Because what greater problem is there? If we can't connect with God, if you can't engage with the one who is eternal, if you're just stuck here in exile, cut off from him. Uh, Psalm 23 is a pretty famous psalm, it's a beautiful psalm. And Psalm 23 has the promise of dwelling in God's house. And what's the beauty of dwelling in God's house? It is eternal security for everyone who lives right now under the shadow of death. It is the offer of eternal joy as you feast with God in safety. Um, What it is, is the longing of every heart then and now getting satisfied. When you live in the house of God, everything you need is met. Uh, C.S. Lewis observes, and we may or may not get it on the screen, we will, excellent. He said this, if individuals lived only 70 years, then a state or a nation or a civilization which may last for a thousand years is more important than an individual. Yeah, that's, you know, if we're just here for a short amount of time, you know, the, those empires matter, they're significant. But if Christianity is true, and it is, then the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important. For he or she is everlasting and the life of a state or civilization compared with his is only a moment. He's saying we, he's saying something about us. He's pointing out that we are eternal beings, that we're made for something bigger than just a short 70 years. And so the rise and fall of empires matters far less than how every individual might prepare for eternity. And so that distance between us and the Persian Empire, that doesn't matter. No, no, no. Um, What draws us together, the issues are the same. What matters is how real people, then and now, real people like you and me, can possibly connect with the eternal God and find forgiveness and enter worship and have a home in God's presence for eternity. To get the satisfaction you're longing for but don't find anywhere here on earth. And Ezra speaks into people of weakness, people are kind of feeling, you know, we haven't got this in in heart, and he offers them hope. And that opening word, and, ties to the previous book, uh, to Chronicles. In fact, if you turn a page before, not that hard, um, you will see right at the end from verse 22 on, just the page before, it is a carbon copy of Ezra's opening. Um, What it's doing is tying it together as it bridges those 70-year gap. It's saying exile is not the last word. Being cut off from God is not the final word on your failures. God will make a way for sinners to live in his house. And so as we look at Ezra, I don't want you to feel the distance of the strange names. Here is God answering, speaking to the eternal longing of every heart. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next four Sundays. We're going to be hearing the comfort of God in our weakness. We're going to see him answer our longings through Ezra. And today, after a particularly long introduction, uh, we're going to be looking at those opening three chapters. 
And one truth to hold on to as we do, God stirs hearts to build his house. God stirs hearts to build his house. One verse, one is clear. God, God keeps his word. Every God, promise God makes, he keeps. Uh, he keeps his word even when people refuse him, defy him, even when people fail him. He keeps his word and does not abandon sinners. He makes a way for them to be in his presence. That is what he's working towards. God stirs hearts to build his house, a house he'll fill. We're going to look at it in two parts. The first, God stirs hearts. So first, he stirs unbelieving hearts, unbelieving hearts. So 1 verse 2, Cyrus says he's been appointed. He's going to build this temple in Jerusalem. And he says in verse 3, any Jew is welcome to return and be a part of it. And in verse 4, he, is, he, he makes a way to fund it, to pay for it. Uh, Neighbours of those exiles were going to financially aid the projects. So in verse 6, it's just like when the Israelites in Exodus, in, in Moses' time, they were slaves and they left carrying the plunder of the Egyptians. Well, these exiles are returning with their captors' gold and silver. But even more... Verse 7, Cyrus himself is, is going to return the temple treasures stolen by Babylon. As Cyrus commits to rebuilding God's temple. Verse 1, he is moved by God himself. But here's the important bit, he's not a believer. Yes, he acknowledges that you'll see the Lord, the God of heaven. That's just him being polite. He's just using the term that Jews used for their God. Verse 3, he makes clear, this is their God. Not his. Um, there's a, a, a record of the time called the Cylinder of Cyrus. And it makes clear he is a polytheist. That is, he believes there's lots of gods. Um, and it makes clear in there that he sent the nations back, yes, in part to secure his rule. You know, they're going to love him as their rescuer. But in greater part, the Cylinder tells us he sent them back so that those people would go back and their, pray to their gods to his god, to his greater god, Marduk. That is, Cyrus is not trying to serve the true God. Here he is, the most powerful person in the day, refusing God, and yet he's still an instrument of the Lord. Yet, weak as we might feel at points, we worship the God of heaven. That is, we worship the God of heaven, the one who is over all. Everything is under him, nothing is above him. And his rule is not limited to just kind of working and stirring in people who've decided to follow him. God, God doesn't get kind of handcuffed like us where it's kind of he's reliant on only the people who'll do what he says to get his way. No, he's controlling everyone and everything. And he moves Cyrus's heart to his own. We've got a big God, uh, as J.I. Packer helpfully put it when he was stressing the, the personal nature of God. He says this, speaking about us, our personal life is a finite thing. We're limited in every direction, in space, in time, in knowledge, in power. That's our weakness, isn't it? But God is not so limited. He is eternal, infinite and almighty. And the beautiful line at the end, he has us in his hands, but we never have him in ours. He has us in his hands, we never have him in ours. Now, I'd say that's the logic of what is a key verse in this book. Um, Ezra 8.22, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. See, we've got a big God. There's this lovely detail uh, in the return of the stolen temple articles in verse 7. Um, the last time those articles were mentioned was at Belshazzar's feast. 
the night before the Babylonian Empire fell. They, they took what was holy to God and they kind of thought, we can just use it to celebrate. It can be ordinary for us. We're bigger than that God. They disrespected God's holiness. They were brought down. The true God has the last laugh. His holy vessels are returned. God is big even when we're weak. He stirs unbelieving hearts. But with that, he stirs believing hearts. Verse 5 uses exactly the same phrase of moving Cyrus' heart, but this time it's about his people. So they moved in heart, stirred in action to go and rebuild his house. Not only do they go and, and kind of financially invest, they're willing to relocate. If you look over, you've got Ezra 2 in front of you. Um, I spared anyone having to read it. Uh, You can just do a quick scan and you can see uh, a whole list of of people and numbers. The first thing to note, just a scan over there will show God works in real people. Okay, real people. Uh, The the God of heaven is not only big and mighty, he's also personal and intimate. And then in Ezra 2, we've got there not only the stirring of real individuals, but huge numbers of individuals. Uh, If you skip over to verse 64, top of the next page, verse 64, the whole company numbered 42,360. And and of that 42,000, there's a variety of people. You know, Israelite descendants, priests and Levites, singers, gatekeepers, um, huge different types of people. Um, Different sections of society are covered. In the opening 20 verses, you've got people who are are listed by name. They're they're a little more well-to-do, well-off. And then uh, from 21 on, you've got those listed just by their town, not not so famous that their names are recognised. And there's the purity of God's people. Uh, In verse 62, um, those who couldn't prove their credentials were excluded from citizenship. Why is that... God has to keep his word. He promised he would return his people and bring them back, not bring a different people in. And so it's important that they could show, no, we're from that family. God is being faithful. As the God who can work on the big scale of empires and direct kings can also work locally in homes and hearts like ours. So people there willingly gave up a comfortable and established life in Babylon to go back to a war-torn, devastated land of their parents. Uh, there's actually a discrepancy in the count in, in verse 64. About 13,000, the numbers are out if you do um, a bit of calculator work later on. Um, I did. Uh, most likely, it's that uh, the women weren't counted in that earlier list. It, it means then that men outnumbered women by more uh, than two to one. It's a reminder this is a risky adventure. You know, it, it's the kind of adventure that young single men, you know, foolishly... Uh, embark on, I can rebuild a city from scratch, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm getting out there. Um, It is not a place to raise your children. So God stirs hearts, he he strengthens and encourages us in our weakness, that our weakness is not too much, that in his power we can do great things. And, And in seeing that, what we're invited to do is this, to take comfort in God's hand over all to take comfort in God's hand over all. Um, Ezra 1 is saying to you and me, God will fulfil his word. He'll keep his promises and he doesn't need people in you know, positions of power or influence or strength to do that. Um, you know, feeling weak and marginalised, we feel tempted that we've got to kind of compromise. We've got to fit in, to tone down our faith. Now, 
you get in that place, not only is spiritual compromise like that dangerous, it's unnecessary. It's God who rules. And Ezra invites us to change the way we look at the world, to, to look for God's hand in everything. You know, to see him keeping his word on and on. Um, Steve Whitmer, he gives an excellent advice for us. He says this, We should begin each day asking God to give us faith to see his hand in every encounter. So pray three things at the start of the day. Uh, One, Lord, I'm a person in desperate need of help today. Two, Lord, won't you in your grace send your helpers my way? And three, Lord, please give me the humility to receive the help when it comes. And he says, daily preparing ourselves to receive God's loving help in unexpected ways through unexpected people opens our eyes to see the loving activity of his hand in every circumstance. We're watching for that fatherly hand. See, God's at work in everything. We we just have eyes to see it. That strengthens us in our weakness. And it's not just from the good things, the moments we get help. Um, In in fact, he goes on and and encourages us, you've got to look uh, for God's hand even in the difficulties, even in the hardships. Uh, It gives his advice, you know, when someone... Uh, hurts us, we should spend more time reflecting on God's good purpose in that hurt than on their evil intentions. That, that um, you know, for every look at someone else's evil intentions, you should take 10 looks at God's providential purpose, what God is trying to teach you from that. Hey, uh, um, you know, if we're going to speculate, why not, you know, instead of wasting your time speculating on what, what harm that person might have been wanting to do to you, why not speculate on what good God is trying to do through that difficulty? So looking constantly for God's invisible, powerful hand, what that does, that strengthens us. We can keep trusting him, even if you feel weak, even if you feel on the edge. Uh, and and Ezra's, uh, in Ezra's time, real people committed to do really costly things because they had confidence that his word would not fail and we can do the same, weak as we might feel. And secondly, with that, more briefly, God has built a house to rejoice in. What's the purpose of his stirring hearts? God has built a house to rejoice in. He stirs for a purpose, to bring sinners back, to end the exile, to restore us. So Ezra 3, uh, we're we're moved to the seventh month. People who are uh, resettled, they gather for worship and they perform, perform all these sacrifices they haven't been able to do in Babylon. And they do it right. That's really important. They do it right. So in verse 2, there's a little phrase, as it was written. So they build an altar for offerings, as it was written in the law of Moses. Verse 4 picks it up again. They keep the Feast of Booths, as it was written. They do it right. They do it right, uh, probably in verse 3, you know, spurred on by a fear of the locals. They know they need divine help, so they're going to do it right. And we skip forward in verse 8, we skip forward two years, jump in time, and work on the temple is actually happening now. And in verse 10, verse 10, the foundation stones are laid. Have a look at it. Uh, I'll read it out in verse 11. With, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. There's great joy. Oh, we're going to connect with God. This is wonderful joy, but it's not all joy. Look at verse 12. Many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. And those two cries coming together could be heard a long way off. This mix of joy and sadness coming together. Um, They wept at the restoration of what was a second-rate place of worship. 
It wasn't as good as it used to be. Most significantly, they had repeated all the key actions from when the, the, the original temple, Solomon's great temple, had been founded. They did it all right. They used the same instruments. Priests wore the same clothes, same vestments. They sang the same exact same song. Um, in Solomon's day, what happened at the end of that was God's glory came in a cloud. And, you know, the presence of God. They, were got to, they got to be in the presence of God. Ezra 3, they do it all right, everything, but no glory comes. No glory. What happened? Uh, Zechariah, a prophet of the time, had to comfort them saying, don't despise this day of small things. Now this disappointment in the rebuild, that was no accident by God. He didn't let down. He's got a bigger purpose. He's stirring hearts to build a greater house to rejoice in. It's his powerful way of saying to them, to you and me, no earthly temple can fill our need for him. That joy and sadness was to create this longing for the real house of God. It is not found by looking back. It is not found in another building that won't last into eternity. In fact, um, that, that eternal longing that is in us all to be at home with God, to find forgiveness, to find acceptance, to, to find security, will not be met by anything in this creation. Now, Ezra's temple foundation uh, you know, points to the, the house that we really can Rejoice in the house God will build through his son, the Lord Jesus. So in John 14, it's a beautiful passage. John 14, Jesus is there comforting his closest friends. Uh, their hearts are troubled. Their hearts are troubled because he's about to leave them and die. And he comforts by saying he's dying that he might secure for them a room in his father's house. Now the real temple, living with God, you know, his eternal home, the place of blessing. And it's through Jesus himself. As he says in John 14, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. That's how you get to the Father. That's how you get to dwell with him forever. Christ's own body is the true temple. You know, the place where God and humanity really meet. And, he, and, and the destruction of his body on the cross, we looked at it two weeks ago, that barrier separating us and him is removed. And so true worship is now opened up. It's taken from, from one little place in passing creation to be done anywhere and everywhere by spirit and truth for all who trust in Christ. It's what we read in Acts 2, where God doesn't just kind of stir our hearts, move our hearts, he pours the Holy Spirit into each of us. You know, we have that real satisfying encounter with God and we have a guarantee that one day we will dwell in God's house with him forever. See, God has stirred that he might build a house to rejoice in. And in Christ, he's offering that kind of satisfaction, the longing we need that we might be with him. And so here's the final encouragement. Set your heart on God's eternal home. See, in Jesus, he's stirred that the exile might be ended, that we wouldn't be stuck in a place that won't last. Now, that mix of joy and tears is a call to you and me. Yes, enjoy the blessings now, but know their limits. Enjoy what's passing by investing in eternity with the God who loves steadfastly. Because our problem is, even with the longings of our heart for something that's eternal, we're constantly tempted to, to over-invest in what will pass. Uh, the former Beatle Paul McCartney uh, was in James Corden's Carpool Karaoke. Um, depending on who you are, you may recognise the one on the left or the right more easily. But the one on the right is, um, uh, he was famous once uh, as a Beatle. There are some nods from that corner, thank you. Um, 
Simple concept, if you've never seen Carpool Karaoke, though I know you have. Uh, Corden drives around with a celebrity. He chats in between renditions of their big hits. Um, now, McCartney is now an old man, and they drive around the streets of his youth. And the Christian author, Brett McCracken, commented on this particular episode. He goes, there's something about the joy of this clip, which finds McCartney singing his old hits amid his old haunts in Liverpool that is deeper than mere diversion. It's a joy intertwined with sadness, nostalgia, the ephemeral realities of life. A joy that's satisfying because it's unsatisfying. A joy that sparks in us that ineffable sense that however beautiful the sunset, what we truly long for lies always beyond the horizon. See, as McCartney's going around the good old days, there's joy, you know, like he's got these wonderful loving memories of, was it, these were great times of his youth and in his prime and, and big hits and big songs and he loves singing them and yet there's a sadness because what he truly longs for is always behind the horizon. You know, what, what there was is passing. It was a passing joy, a real joy but passing. That's what's going on in that temple in Ezra 3, this joy that sparked a greater longing. This, the, you know, the full connection with God was beyond the horizon. It's not found by going back. And it's not going to be found in any other part of this passing creation. And you and I, we know that feeling, don't we? But in Jesus, God has built an eternal house that we really can rejoice in, that will last forever. And so we enjoy, yes, what's passing by investing in eternity. That we satisfy our longings in worshipping the God who loved you and me at great cost that he might end the exile and bring us back. Invite us into his home forever. See, God stirs the heart to build his house. Why? For he is good. His love endures forever. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for the God you are, the God of great power. As we sang earlier tonight, uh, you are strong and kind. You are powerful and rule over um, even the greatest rulers in this world. Uh, Whether they want to or not, they do your bidding. Your plans never fail. Your word never fails. And we thank you for your love. We thank you for the fact that you are committed to bring us back at great cost. And we thank you that what lies before us is eternally in the joy of your home. And Father, may we fix our eyes there. In Jesus' name. Amen.